Turn, if you would, to the Canons of Dort, Article 7 of the First Head of Doctrine, found on page 898 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal and page 260 in the Book of Forms and Prayers. You know that if you mention election, that sometimes tensions arise. It certainly does in the political arena because everyone wishes their candidate to be the one voted on by the population, and particularly if uh, the polls are close, it can be quite a contentious thing, election. And what is true in the political realm is also true in the theological world. Mention election among believers, and you'll get sometimes some conflict, at least vigorous debate and discussion. And election was one of the things that called together theologians from all over Europe and the United Kingdom to Dordrecht in 1618-1619 and uh, to discuss our salvation. And uh, after discussion, this is what our forefathers in the faith summarize, or this is how our forefathers in the faith summarize the biblical teaching of election. And so I want to read Article 7, and then uh, we'll preach from 2 Thessalonians 2, which has a similar theme. Election, or choosing, is God's unchangeable purpose by which He did the following. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of His will, He chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom He also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. And so, He decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved, and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through His Word and Spirit. In other words, He decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of His Son, to glorify them. And God did all this in order to demonstrate His mercy to the praise of the riches of His glorious grace. As Scripture says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that, so that we should be holy and blameless before Him with love. He predestined us, whom He adopted as His children through Jesus Christ, in Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, by which He freely made us pleasing to Himself in His Beloved. And elsewhere, those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. 
And then if you turn to the Holy Word of God, to the second letter of Paul, to the Thessalonians, you'll find that on page 1260, 1260, I'll read the verses 13 through 17, and though the sermon will focus only on verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thus far, the reading of God's word. I mentioned that the doctrine of election is often the fodder for vigorous discussion and debate. And of course, that makes sense in one way because we are dealing with deep truths of God. And the doctrine of election can sometimes be perplexing to people. And so it's helpful to discuss these things, to debate them, to sit with one another with the Word of God open and try to understand the mind of God as He has revealed that to us in His Word. But the doctrine of election ought never to only be a matter of debate and discussion. In fact, what the Apostle Paul shows us here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is that election ought to be a matter of thanksgiving to God. In fact, that's one of the reasons why our call to worship was from Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That is, God's kindness to us is not something that is experienced only in this life as long as we live, but it is an everlasting love from before the foundation of the world that carries on throughout the pilgrimage of our life until eternity in the future. And so the Apostle Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonian Christians. You'll notice, I think, that he does that in many of his letters, and I wonder if we do that ourselves, if you ever thank God for one another. Give him praise for your brothers and sisters who surround you in the congregation each Lord's Day. It is a fitting practice for us to do. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 1, the Apostle Paul did that too. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, the same words that we find in our text this evening. But there he was thanking God for the work of grace evidenced in the lives of the Thessalonians at a certain place at a certain time. 
He says, we give thanks to God always for you, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But even there, though he focuses on God's grace that is evidenced in the day-to-day lives of God's people there, he also goes back beyond that to eternity when he says in the next verse, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And so there the apostle Paul gives thanks to God for the present experience of grace but also for the past experience of grace in God's choosing the Thessalonians. And here in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul thanks God again for what he is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians at the present time, also pulling them back to what God has done for them in the past, but then also taking them forward to what God is going to do for them in the future. So he talks about past eternity. He talks about future eternity. And then he talks about the in-betweens. And we want to look at these two verses under those three headings. First of all, the Apostle Paul gives thanks to God for what he had done in the past. Now, that might not be entirely obvious to you as you read the text, as you have it in the ESV. But if you notice what uh, you see behind the word first fruits, there's a numeral one that sends you down to the bottom of the page. You can also translate this verse in this way. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. And so Paul takes them back to the beginning. He describes the beginning in other ways in his letters, from before the foundation of the earth, or from eternity, or before time. And what the Apostle Paul is speaking about is what happened in the Council of Redemption the discussion amongst the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when in that eternal conference, God chose who would inherit eternal life. God chose you from the beginning. So that out of the whole mass of humans, God chose specific ones who would share in the blessings of His grace. And the word that Paul uses there, chose, is used two other times in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews 11, verse 25, speaking about Moses. Moses could either suffer with the people of God, or he could enjoy the riches of Egypt. There were two options before him, and he chose the one and left the other. It's also used by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, verse 22, you know, where he speaks about uh, how he wishes to die, to be with Christ, because that is better by far, but it would be more fruitful for the Philippians if he were to stay and minister to them. 
And then he says, but which I shall choose, I do not know. There's two options in front of him. Which he shall choose, he does not know. And so here, the Apostle Paul speaks about God having options before him and choosing some to be saved. It's only used three times, I say, in the New Testament Scriptures, but you'll find that word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament Scriptures, particularly in a couple of passages that are pertinent to our discussion this evening. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Moses says to the Israelites, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There's that word. God had chosen Israel. There were many nations that God could have chosen, but he preferred Israel above them all. That same word comes in Hebrew, I mean in Deuteronomy 10, uh, verse 15, where Moses says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. And so this choice of God from the beginning, from before the creation of the world, this choice sets those whom God has chosen in a special relationship with Him. All humans belong to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it because He founded it upon the waters. He's the great creator of all. But those whom He chose are those who belong to Him in a special way. They are the objects of His unique love, and they become His treasured possession. So this is the doctrine of election. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father set His love upon certain of humankind so that they would enjoy the blessings of eternal life. And then others He didn't choose. He left them. He passed over them so that they would not be the recipients of His saving grace. Perhaps you can be helped if I bring you to another passage of Scripture where this is taught, and that is in Jesus' discourse in John 10. Remember, that's the chapter where He speaks about Himself as a shepherd and as Christians as sheep. And then after uh, Jesus was walking in the temple, the Jews gathered around Him. This is John 10, verse 24, and they said to Him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense?' If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus is teaching the same thing here, that before the foundation of the world, God the Father gave certain people to God the Son. 
And these people are sheep. They belong to the shepherd in a way that other humans do not. And precisely because they are sheep, when they hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, they follow him. It's very striking what Jesus says to the Jews. He says to them, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now think about that. We, we, might, we would tend to think that, the re- that, that they do not believe, and because they do not believe, they don't belong to Jesus. But Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. Because they don't belong to me, because the Father hasn't chosen them and given them to me from before the foundation of the world, because they don't belong to me, therefore they do not believe. So that again, from before the creation of the world, from the beginning, God chose certain individuals to be the recipients of his grace. And others he left to themselves to perish in their sin. So Paul takes us to eternity past. But then he takes us to eternity future. When he says that God has chosen us to be saved and then describes what that salvation is. That salvation is, as it says at the end of verse 14, to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why did God choose some and not others? You know, what was his design in choosing some? He chose them to be saved. Now, this is in stark contrast with others. If you just turn back a page in your Bibles, or at least turn back a page of my Bible, in in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, you hear about people who will have vengeance inflicted on them. People who will, verse 9, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There are people... Go to chapter 2, verse 10. People who are perishing. People who are, verse 12, condemned. So on the one hand, you have people who will have vengeance inflicted on them, who will experience eternal destruction from the presence of God's might, who are um, perishing, who are condemned. And then you have those whom God has chosen who will inherit salvation. It's a marvelous distinction. It's a profound contrast. The chosen are chosen to salvation, and the others are left and will experience eternal condemnation. But what does that salvation look like? Well, I said Paul takes us to eternity future to speak about the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be openly displayed in all of his magnificence, when he will come back on the clouds of heaven, when every eye shall see him, and when he will be marveled at among all who have believed. That is, there's a day when there's going to be this public display of the glory and magnificence of the Lamb of God who was chosen from before the foundation of the world to be the Redeemer of the people of God. 
Now this is, this is striking because think about how our Lord Jesus Christ is treated now by the vast majority of humanity. There are some, of course, who are openly antagonistic toward Jesus, who mock him and scorn him and ridicule him and blaspheme him. But there are others who just ignore him, who think he's of no import, of no significance whatsoever, whether he's there or whether he's not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't impact their lives whatsoever. This is the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ that he experienced on earth, misunderstood by his disciples, by his own family, forsaken by them, hated by the religious leaders who sought his death, crucified by the Romans. It was a life of suffering and shame and humiliation. But when Christ returns in glory, all humiliation is gone. He will be publicly displayed as the great one, as the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration by all people. That is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that Christians who have been chosen from the beginning are chosen to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say that the same brilliance that will display our Lord Jesus will be radiated to us as well. Our Lord Jesus is not stingy. We uh, share in his glory, and he shares his glory with us so that whatever it means in all of its fullness, one of the things it will mean is that we will be publicly vindicated before all humanity as the ones who belong to this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's no small thing. Again, if, if humanity thinks Jesus is nothing, then, of course, they think that Christians are a bit silly. They might not be a, a, openly antagonistic towards you, but they do think that you're a bit silly. They must think that. Otherwise, would they not join you in bending the knee and swearing allegiance to this Lord Christ? They perhaps pity you. They think, uh, what a miserable life you must have having to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and wouldn't it be great for them, they might think, if they had all the freedoms that we enjoy and not fettered by these old myths and uh, teachings that uh, squash individual expression. Well, they may mock all they wish. Our Lord told us they would. But on that day, we will not be the ones who are looking silly, but it will be the rest who did not obey the gospel, who thought Christ was no one to be cherished. And we who have wasted our lives in the service of Christ, will be exalted. We will share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul takes us eternity past. From the beginning, God chose you. Eternity future. One day you will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the in-betweens between those eternities. What happened in the here and now amongst uh, the Thessalonian believers. And this is important for us to understand because 
election itself. So God's choice of people to salvation doesn't actually save them. No, Christ is the one who saves them. And so God the Father chose certain ones to be saved from before the foundation of the world, but then he also orchestrated their lives so that they would undoubtedly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of their souls so that they might obtain eternal glory. That is, uh, God doesn't have uh, a great plan and then say, cross my fingers, let's hope it works. Let's hope that those whom I've chosen will actually share in the glory of Jesus Christ. No, he doesn't do things haphazardly like that. He calls, he chooses for eternal glory, and then he makes sure that everything necessary is done so that those chosen will inherit eternal life. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30. Just listen to this. And those whom he predestined, that is, destined, he determined their destiny beforehand. So, from before the foundation of the world, it's similar to God chose us from the beginning. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Eternity past, predestined. Eternity future, glorified. The present, he called and he justified. And so Paul says this is what happened amongst the Thessalonians as well. He says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. So what did God do to ensure that those whom he chose would inherit eternal life and obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, he sent his son into this world. Paul doesn't explicitly refer to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, but it's there. It's absolutely foundational because Paul talks about our gospel, the gospel that he and and Silas preached to the Thessalonians recorded in Acts 17. And the gospel is nothing else but a record of what God has done in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so God had chosen people. He had given them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Christ had died for them, taken upon himself their sins and then their penalty for their sins so that they might be saved. And so the work of Christ, the person and work of Christ is absolutely foundational for what God has done. But even that is insufficient. It's not enough that Christ dies and that he is raised again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Election in itself doesn't save. The death of Christ in itself doesn't save. Unless people are brought to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, God made sure of that as well. Verse 13, from the beginning, God chose you 
Verse 14, in time, God called you through our gospel. God is, of course, the the great caller. Abram was languishing in Ur of the Chaldeans, serving false gods, and God called him, and Abram came. The disciples were, before they were disciples, some of them were fishermen, mending their nets, and the Lord Jesus called them, and they followed him. Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus called him, and they followed him. And so, Paul says to these Thessalonians, God called you through our gospel. And the call of God in this particular case is effective. It actually accomplishes what God intends. You know, there is, uh, there is the gospel call where the preaching goes out to all people and all nations, holding forth the Lord Jesus Christ and offering salvation to all. And, and many hear this outward call of the gospel and, and do not believe in Jesus Christ, do not bow down before him as their Lord. But that's not the call here in 2 Thessalonians 2. This call of God was effective where he brought these Thessalonians out of darkness and into light, out of a state of perishing to a state of salvation. Perhaps I can distinguish the call this way for you children. You, you know, I'm sure you know, uh, that uh, at times when it's su- time for supper, your mother will call you. And often, that call does absolutely nothing. You hear her call you, but you're playing with Legos, and who wants to stop playing with Lego? And so you just keep on playing with Lego, or you're with your neighborhood friends, and you don't want to come in just now. You, you will come in, but just not right now. And so that call of your mother is ineffective. It doesn't accomplish what she intends. Well, this call of God does. He's not just saying words that people can ignore, reject, No, when he calls these Thessalonian Christians, because he had chosen them from before the foundation of the world, when he called them, they actually came to him. And how did he call them? Well, Paul says that it was important that they heard the message of salvation. God called you through our gospel. See, it's so important that that people hear about the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might be saved. Often there's uh, the opposition to election is that, well, if God has chosen people to salvation, well, then there's no need for us to evangelize or to preach because those whom God has chosen, they're going to be saved whether you preach to them or not. Well, actually, that's not true. Those whom God has chosen to be saved must hear the preaching of of the Word of God, so that they might have belief in the truth, so that the great teaching of God's electing love compels people to share the gospel with others. You might remember that incident in in, uh, Paul's life. He's preaching in Corinth for 18 months and having no success, and he's somewhat discouraged. And then the Lord Jesus speaks to him at night and says, Paul, you must press on. You must keep on preaching here. 
Why? Because I have many people in this city. That is, the Lord Jesus says, there are, there are chosen people here who belong to me. They must hear my voice. So keep on preaching, Paul. And this is exactly what happened to the Thessalonians. God orchestrated things in such a marvelous way that these Thessalonian Christians should hear the gospel. It meant that he had to raise up an apostle to do it. It meant that he had to humble this persecutor of the church, the apostle Paul, and then direct his life in such a way that at a certain point he spent three and a half weeks in Thessalonica demonstrating from the Scriptures that Jesus was God. And these Thessalonians heard the gospel of Christ. And through that gospel, they were called. The next thing that's important is not just hearing about the gospel of Christ, but believing in the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul says. God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Again, this is in contrast to those who are perishing. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Those who have vengeance inflicted upon them do not know God, and they do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. They who are perishing refuse to love the truth and so be saved. God sent them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So over against the unbelievers who do not obey the gospel, who do not love the truth, who do not believe in the truth, these Thessalonian Christians did. It's the very thing they did. They heard the gospel, and they embraced Jesus Christ as the promised Savior of sinners. And why did they do so? Is it because they were more clever than others? No. Is it because they had more insight? Well, yes. But the reason they had more insight is because in them, the Spirit of God was working. Notice that Paul says that these were chosen to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That is, they would never have embraced the gospel unless the Holy Spirit had worked in their hearts, enlightening them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so these believers, chosen from before the foundation of the world, chosen to salvation, were by the grace of God called in time through the preaching of the gospel, through the working of the Spirit, to faith in Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. They were called, and they were also kept. Notice that they had been called to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not called simply to Christ, but called to Christ and to obtain 
the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, God's commitment to his people is for the long haul, from eternity to eternity. He doesn't start a work of grace and then leave them to themselves. I sometimes think about this uh, when I see parents or remember myself trying to teach my children how to ride a bicycle. You know how uh, you run behind your children, you grab the seat and you run behind them and balance the bike for them, and then when you think they've got it or when you're tired, you just let go. And then hopefully they can take off on their own. It's not the way God works. He doesn't get us going and then hope we succeed all by ourselves. No, he keeps us. He starts us, and then he keeps us to the end because his love is from everlasting to everlasting in his choosing us, calling us, keeping us so that we inherit and obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the commentators said that in these two verses, we have a system of theology in miniature. And it's quite remarkable in these two verses. You have the three-person God. You have God the Father who has chosen us. You have God the Son, your brothers beloved by the Lord. And you have God the Holy Spirit. And then Paul takes us the whole sweep of human history from before to after, from the beginning to the end, and shows us that salvation is completely, thoroughly, and absolutely the work of our sovereign God, our sovereign triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why it makes all the sense in the world for Paul to begin this section by saying, we ought always to give thanks to God concerning you. Well, I mean, what else are you going to do? You can't really congratulate the Thessalonians for how wise they are or what a good choice they made or, you, you know, that, that they put their faith in Jesus Christ as if, as if it were something that they did on their own, unaided by any grace. No, you can only, you can only give thanks to God because salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. So let us give thanks to God for his uh, unfailing, his steadfast love, and worship him both now and forever for his sovereign grace that has intervened and has brought us out of darkness into life from the shame and degradation of eternal destruction to obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we humbly bow before you. We ask, why should we be the recipients of grace and so many others left in their own sin and rebellion? We know that it isn't our doing. We know our own hearts well enough. Even our hearts that have been redeemed and transformed are still so stubborn, and we know that if you had not conquered us, we would still refuse and reject. We know that we love you because you have loved us first. And so tonight, we give thanks to you 
We worship you, adore you, and praise you for your unfailing love, for your eternal favor that you have shown to us and will show to us. We thank you that you will never stop loving us because you've never started loving us, because your goodness is from everlasting to everlasting. And we pray that this knowledge of your sovereign grace would compel us to share the good news with others, to speak to others of what Christ has done, confident that uh, there are other sheep who need to hear your voice so that uh, they too may come in and be saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, sing together in response hymn number 428. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord that could not be, this heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. 428, let's sing that standing. The offering this evening is for the budget of the church and for the uh, organization item that provides theological education around the world. And then our doxology is number 473, By the Sea of Crystal, and we'll sing the third stanza, just connecting it with our sermon this morning. In the book of Revelation, there are two things said about the sea. One is that there is no sea, and uh, second, that the sea is crystal, it's calm highlighting that all opposition to God and His people one day will end, and we will share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the blessings of salvation. So 473, the third stanza. <laughs> 